Welcome to the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. I'm Michael Shoulder, and early May is one of my favorite times of year. It's the time of year when some of the wisest people in the world are invited to give the college commencement address. And the best of these college commencements addresses are so moving, they can remind us adults how to live a more meaningful life, how to reboot. You can find those commencement addresses on the web with just a couple of clicks. So on this edition of Wavemaker Conversations, I want to start preparing a different kind of commencement address for a different audience. It's for parents like me who have kids who haven't even entered high school yet. And given the mania surrounding the college admissions process, which every parent is talking about that I know, starting as early as elementary school, I'm setting out to craft the greatest commencement address for eighth graders that has ever been written. And the first person I am turning to is a psychologist and somebody who's been on the front lines of this world for many years, and I've turned to him many times for stories about parenting and education. Joining us now is Michael Thompson. Michael, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be back with you. Well, thank you. The last time we spoke, by the way, before we get into the commencement address, it was, I believe, in 2011, 2012. It's after uh, Amy Chua, the Yale Law professor, wrote uh, the wildly controversial book, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom. Right. And it triggered a whole conversation around the country about a new term, extreme parenting. And I called you at the time I was working at CNN because I wanted to do a story called, You Know You're an Extreme Parent If. I remember. And and you filled in the blanks. And I have to have you share one of the stories you shared with me had to do with a kid going to summer camp. And do you remember that story about the cell phones? Oh, yes. The mother sent him off with three cell phones, one one to turn in voluntarily, one to stay in touch with her until it got confiscated, and then the third one to to uh, uh, to maintain the anxious line of connection between mother and child. The anxious line of connection. That is exactly the story. It's one of the funniest. It's comic and tragic, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Please tell the audience what you do for a living, and and they'll understand why I've turned to you. I trained to be a clinical child psychologist to see children with uh, emotional problems and to see their families uh, at times of uh, uh, stress. But I migrated into a school consultation work, and often in independent, or as they used to be called, private schools, where there are many ambitious parents with a lot of college hopes and, and um, sometimes ambitions by name uh, for their children. When you say ambitions by name, what do you mean? Oh, you know, the parents who won an Ivy League college. First of all, in terms of this college admissions mania that's going on right now, and certainly has been since I've started raising my children a number of years ago, uh, when did this really start? Oh, it's hard. I'm not a social historian, but it, it certainly happened uh, during the last 30 years, as global competition increased, um, ambitious parents or parents who are worried that their children would be economically downwardly mobile, that is, not have as good financial lives as the parents had, they began to cultivate their children to get them into elite colleges so they would be guaranteed um, a high-level work life. 
and and the the equation is sort of the great college equals the great job equals the great life. And so, when did you start seeing? At what point did you start giving advice that you didn't realize you might have to give? I was consulting for an independent school down in Texas, and they told me there was a board member at this school who herself had gone to Stanford, and she was very concerned that this school wasn't uh, sending enough kids to Stanford. As a measure of the quality of a school, the number of people who get into Stanford is a lousy measure because you're never going to get more than one or two. Um, And it has a lot more to do with the gifts of the kid than it does how much um, value a school can add because uh, you need a a, a brilliant, persevering, uh, academically oriented child to put together the record to apply to Stanford, and even then, when they only take 5% of kids and turn down thousands of valedictorians, doing everything in your power in high school to get into uh, an elite college still means you're entering a lottery. But at any rate, it becomes the obsession sometimes of a board member, and it had at the school, and so she wanted, uh, I can't remember, McKinsey and Company or Bain and Company to come in to do an evaluation of the college admissions at the school. And whoever the consulting firm was, they said, you know, the school's getting in the the typical number of kids to Stanford that any private school in Texas is, is getting in, and not to worry. But the, the school then instituted a program, because uh, they had to do something to please this board member, to be talking to eighth graders about college, ginning them up, ramping them up about college. And they asked me what, you know, Dr. Thompson, what do you think of that? And I said, I think it's a really lousy idea. (laughs) And this is what year, by the way, roughly speaking? Oh, this is probably 15 years ago. Okay. So, uh, you know, 2000. So you tell them it's it's a lousy idea, and what reason did you give them? Look, eighth graders don't have uh much capacity for long-term thinking. They they don't connect what they're doing every day to their future. Their parents do, because we're all cursed with long-range thinking, future planning, delay of gratification. I mean, if you've been successful, you've relied on some of those things. So they think, well, if we talk to eighth graders about college every day, they'll really focus on college. It's very difficult for eighth graders to imagine what college is. It's very hard for them to connect their work every day to college. So what you do is you end up making them anxious um, because you're constantly talking to them about the future. And they're trying to survive this day, this class, this homework assignment. And you're saying, no, your future depends on it. Your future depends on it. You can make some of them quite anxious. And we're seeing more anxiety um, in children, pediatricians in the United States are reporting more anxiety because parents are transmitting anxiety, but it doesn't actually help many of them to become more organized, and it certainly doesn't help many of them become more inspired learners. Now, when you talk about anxiety, uh, I mean, there's a little anxiety, and then there's uh, anxiety that can almost be debilitating. What are you seeing on the front lines over these past 15 years, and is it even changing by the year now, in terms of level of anxiety among kids? 
we're seeing more anxiety and depression in college students. Pediatricians in the United States are reporting they're seeing more anxiety and wellness visits. The American Academy of Pediatrics published a white paper on this, and it may be five or six years ago now, where they said the college ambitions of parents and uh, the, the overscheduled uh, lives of children, and but especially the loss of free undirected play, was causing more anxiety in children. Pediatricians are seeing it. Well, I was at a, an all-boys uh, private school in Toronto, and they tossed me a group of fifth graders. Uh, now, ask yourself, Michael, did your parents talk to you about how the importance of college when you were in fifth grade? You're 10 years old. Were they saying, you know, you've got to get into these colleges by name? But I had 12 fifth graders. And I said, how many of you have had your parents talk to you about the importance of going to a good or great college. All 12 of them raised their hands. I said, how many of you have a college in mind by name? Now, these are Canadian boys. So you you have to sort of know the Ivy League of Canada, which is University of Toronto, Queens, McGill, University of British Columbia. That might be, that's my my quick choice. I said, and eight of them raised their hands. They had a college in mind by choice, and three of them said, Queens, one of those boys said Queens in engineering. Uh, they said UBC. They said the University of Toronto. And then the final boy said Harvard. And my parents just took me to see the campus over Christmas vacation. Well, um, I asked them, do you know how hard it is to get into Harvard? Do they choose one in 10, one in 20, one in 50, one in three? That They had no idea. They had no clue. Because they're concrete thinkers and they don't have a lot of life experience. And most fifth graders have never been in an intense choice selection um, situation. And do you want to be talking to them about uh, uh, how small a chance it is that they'll get into this place and what they have to do to get there? Is that going to make them inspired students? Is Is it going to make them enjoy late elementary, middle school, and high school? Well, you know, late elementary, middle school, and high school aren't always enjoyable because development is uh, a demanding business in and of itself. Going through puberty is a demanding business. But when you lather on, lay on a lot of anxiety about the future, you will make some kids anxious. You mentioned Stanford, and I will tell you that I interviewed a, a woman there, a psychology professor, I'm sure you know of her, Carol Dweck, yes. uh, author of Mindset. And I asked Carol Dweck, this uh, psychology professor who's, who's done very important work in the field of, of what fosters resilience, because all of us parents, when we think about it, we want resilient kids because we know they're going to get knocked down at some point. It's, the, it's knowing how to get up that's right. so important. And I asked her, I said, how are these kids coming into Stanford? They are virtually all terrified when they arrive here. They're thrilled, they're excited, and they're terrified because they think, okay, now I have to prove I'm the smartest person in the world. And I have to tell them, no, you're not here because you're the smartest person in the world. You're here because you're interesting, you've done interesting things, and Stanford believes you can do interesting things, make important contributions in the future. But I can tell you now, it's going to be hard here. 
And so we're going to talk every few weeks. We're all going to say, what are we struggling with? And it's just an amazing experience for them to hear that every single person is struggling with something, whether it's social, academic, athletic, they are all struggling with something. So it's amazing just that. I mean, that's something that right now, if you're an educator, if you're a parent, even in a marriage, just to articulate that in a very open way, I am struggling with something sounds like it opens the door to a wave of stories. Yes, and it doesn't mean you're not good at that or there's something wrong with you or your relationship isn't good through because you're going through a period of struggling. It means that it's a period of growth, potential growth, and that you've got to really seize that. That's Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck. You've got to really seize the struggle, she says. Advice for young students and their parents. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask Michael Thompson if he were giving this commencement address directly to eighth graders, what would he say? If I were going to talk to eighth graders, I would say... Michael Thompson will complete that thought in a minute, but first I want to welcome a new advertising supporter to Wavemaker Conversations, Mac Weldon is a young, growing company that makes high-quality underwear, undershirts, T-shirts, and socks. And Mack Weldon would like you to know how soft the fabric is, how well-fitting it is, how breathable it is, and how well it holds its shape, how durable it is. But ultimately, these are only things you can judge for yourself. So here is Mack Weldon's proposition for Wavemakers listeners. You can go online at MacWeldon.com, that's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, and enter the promotional code WAVEMAKER with your order, just one word, WAVEMAKER, and you get 20% off. I'm still hesitating, though, because one thing that truly makes me personally reluctant to order clothing online is the thought that if I don't like it, I'm stuck with it. So the Mack Weldon guarantee for Wavemaker's audience is as follows. If you don't love the fit, Mack Weldon will send you a different size or give you a refund, whatever you prefer. So I like that soft sell. MacWeldon.com, 20% off with the promotional code Wavemaker. Here's a tale of two students, both working adults. He commutes to college before and after work, carrying all the baggage that goes with it. She goes to Independence University, and Independence University goes with her. It's online, so all she needs is a connection, and anywhere becomes her campus. He's getting a degree, but he's also getting majorly stressed out. She chose Independence University online for a better life offline. Visit independence.edu or call 800-370-1077 today. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and culture shapers. I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my life. Tech, culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at Play.it. Back to the commencement address for parents of eighth graders, really kids of any age. My guest is psychologist Michael Thompson, author of many great books, including Raising Cain, Protecting the Emotional Life of Boys, 
and the pressure child, helping your child find success in school and life. So given the importance of instilling resilience in kids, are, 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 let's go back to our theme of the commencement address, and we're, we're, we're picking eighth grade because you know that's, it's a great opportunity to send kids in with the right message. What would your message be to eighth graders and their parents? Okay. If I were going to talk to eighth graders, I would say, don't buy the line that high school is just all preparation to get into the grade or elite name college. I think going to college is good. But the real end point of your teenage years is to become a loving, productive, moral, independent young adult. Loving, productive, moral, and independent. And an elite college, use whatever name you want, Stanford, University of Texas, uh, you know, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, um, Bowdoin, I'm moving around the country. Not one of those colleges can guarantee you that admission there will make you a loving, moral, productive, independent young adult. That's your task, uh, is to make yourself into a really formidable young person. But the vast majority of the world doesn't go to elite colleges. What the world needs is loving, moral, productive, independent young people. And you should spend your high school years trying, yes, to get a good education, but also to become a complete person. And if you become a grim, driven, gray-grubbing, anxious person focused on college the whole time, you will be, in a sense, emotionally wasting some years of your life. Let me just ask you about those terms. Kids in eighth grade don't fully appreciate and understand what college means and the different levels. Do they understand the terms loving, productive, moral, and in, most importantly, independent? And do you, have to, do you have to drill down deeper in that language to really reach an eighth grader? Um, to make an independent eighth grader, you need to give them a chance to go away uh, to a summer camp, go off on a school trip, uh, have them have a time of managing in their own lives, uh, taking on tasks without their mother or father uh, leaning over their shoulder, shouting encouragement or critiquing it. Uh, in order to make it independent, you have to give them experiences of independence. And so, so this gets into the big struggle because, you know, a lot of parents who really want to do whatever they can to help the, position their children to at least have a shot at, because it's certainly important to get into a college where you feel it's the right fit and where you're getting great teachers. Everybody wants and needs great teachers. And some colleges have them in higher percentages than others. Maybe not the ones we expect, right. but, but, they, but they do. So, so this idea of parents stepping back, because this has been a theme of yours for many years. It that there has. Is, <laughs> there is over-parenting. That parents, you've told me, parents give themselves too much credit for the impact. Not, not to say they don't have an impact, but too much credit for the impact they have on their children. And you mentioned summer camp. And some people might feel, well, where does summer camp come into this conversation? Uh, tell us about your obsession with summer camp 
and how that fits into the education of an independent growing child. Michael, parents are always asking me, how do I make a confident child? How do I give my child confidence? Um, no one can give their child confidence. And overpraising children or trying to prop up their self-esteem all the time doesn't work. Uh, Martin Seligman at University of Pennsylvania uh, 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 talks about that in The Optimistic Child. And, and there's a... Uh, too much praise gives you a false and fragile uh, a sense of confidence. What gives you actual confidence is to undertake developmentally important challenges and to succeed at them and to know you can face something and grow from the experience and surmount the challenge. That's what Carol Dweck is talking about in mindset. That's a growth mindset. Um, parents who think they can be there at every moment and hand their child confidence or independence are uh, simply misguided. In order to give a child independence, you have to let them be independent. You have to be, let them be away from you. You have to open the door and step back and let them walk through it. And, I mean, if, if I were designing a high school experience for every child, and I know this isn't economically possible, I'd have every child in high school make two foreign trips with uh, a teacher and, and go abroad on, on their own. I think what that does for your confidence when you're in a foreign country with your peers managing, and yes, you have adult supervision, but you, you have to manage uh, the, the foreignness, the uncertainty, your own fears of being in a different place and away from home. The, those things make you grow. And I'm interested in growth and development as the end product of high school, not just straight A's. Not only because not all children can get straight A's, but because the correlation between straight A's and the good life is shaky at best. I, I've, I've worked at it backwards. I had a, a, a psychotherapy practice, and I knew a lot of very successful people who weren't particularly successful in academic terms in high school. But they got into college. I'm, I'm thinking of a man, and I don't think he really got his feet under him in, in, until his junior year of college. Well, there are a lot of modern parents who would be tearing their hair out at the idea. And I said, why did you get your act together? And he said, my parents ran into some financial misfortune, and I had to take over by paying my own tuition in college. And that's when I got serious about my education, when I was paying for it myself. Now, that is independence. It's necessity, but it's independence. And all of a sudden, when he had to grow up and, and take his education seriously and, and, you know, take on the student loan for it, then he, uh, uh, that's when it, he really began to focus. Up until that, then it had been on somebody else's nickel. And so I've asked thousands of people to tell me, when did you come into your own? You know, I want, I want to stop on that phrase. I want to stop on that phrase because this is why I'm having you on this show. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that you were able to preface that by saying, I have asked thousands of people. So mm -hmm. I'm coming to you because you have an ability at, uh, of, you have an ability to recognize patterns after having yes. spoken to thousands of people. So continue, please. Right. Well, you know, middle schoolers aren't focused on college. They're focused on friends. <laughs> and that's developmental. 
Do I have the friends I want? Can I make the connections I want? Do I have the group I want? Um, that's developmentally appropriate. Early high schoolers are thinking, can I master this much freedom when I don't have any homeroom teacher or stuff and I'm wandering around a large high school? Can I get where I need to be? Can I meet my commitments on my own? These are questions. I, I was once talking to a girl whose parents had sent her from Hong Kong to a boarding school in North America. Now, that's a big deal to be 12,000 miles away from home. And I said, how are you finding it? And she said, well, I miss my mom, but I realize I can do my homework without her. She said, my whole life, homework has always meant my mom was sitting next to me doing it with me. And now I'm able to do it on my own. Wow. Well, that's, that's a big deal. And I give her parents credit. It's not everybody should send their children 12,000 miles away, but... The parents were trying to provide some kind of educational or, I hope, growth experience for this ninth-grade girl, and she got it. I was once talking to a girl at American School in London, and um, her environmental studies class had gone uh, to a game park in South Africa as the culmination of their environmental studies trip, and they were camping out in a game park. Well, that was pretty scary. And she said she was talking to her mom, and her mom was all fearful for her. And she said, I have to get off the call because if I talk to my mother, I'm going to want to go home. It's going it's to unnerve me. She'd had a little medical crisis, and her mother was talking to her about that. But the girl was thinking, she will, I'll fall apart. But here I am in Africa in a game park doing something brave and independent. And, and I'm, you notice I'm going to camps and I'm going to trips. When I talk to high school students, many of the real change-making experiences they talk about in high school, the things that promoted their growth the most, are outside of the classroom experiences. I don't know if that was true for you, but it was certainly true for me. A summer job I had was working with blue-collar guys. It was the most important um, thing that happened to me in four years of going to a very good high school. But... Um, being out in the world, encountering things. And so we, we, if we only think learning play, takes place in the classroom, we've narrowed a child's world, and we've narrowed our understanding of how a child grows. In a moment, I'll ask Michael Thompson, who, by the way, speaks to parents at schools across the country about 150 nights a year. I'll ask him about how students can use their experience inside and outside of school to gain independence. We are going to get some serious insights into how kids become independent, and the hint here is parents must step back, but we'll get into the details in a second. First, I want to welcome back to Wavemaker Conversations, Wavemaker supporter, harrys.com. Uh, I've already noticed on Facebook that some of my good friends are buying their high-end shaving supplies at harrys.com, uh, which is a lower price point, high quality and lower price point. And I'm always thinking about how to make my life more efficient. So a uh, true story, I really, I can't tell you how many times I have actually had the experience of going to the drugstore, waiting for the attendant to come unlock the clear case with those expensive blades behind it, and then waiting at the checkout counter. By the time I check out, I've got stubble. Here's Harry's proposition to Wavemaker listeners. You can go to harrys.com, 
order the starter kit, which is $15 normally, but $10 if at checkout you put in the promotional code, which is one word, WAVEMAKER. That's harrys.com, starter kit, discount code, WAVEMAKER. It's really the same pitch I make to my listeners, to you. Try my podcast, sample it. If you love it, then subscribe. Same approach from harrys.com. Try the starter kit. If you love it, you can order all your high-quality shaving supplies online forever. You don't even have to think about it anymore. Harrys.com has a system where they help you calculate how much you're using, and then basically you put it on autopilot, have the resupply delivered to your door. And that will give you more time and space to listen to the Wavemaker conversations and digest the actionable intelligence we're tapping into here. So now, back to our guest, Michael Thompson. We're working on a commencement address for the parents of eighth graders and younger kids. The idea of, of helping a child get the feeling that his or her feet are under them. Right. Boy, what a gift that is. And that's a gift, I guess, based on your experience, that you can't give your child unless you let them have the freedom to be independent and make mistakes. Right. And part of high school is independence because of that big building and nobody's checking on you minute to minute and in the way that having a homeroom teacher or even having, you know, being part of a pod in middle school, you're being checked on because you're littler. But the biggest thing for high schoolers to manage in the first two years is their own time and their own, um, in essentially, location and space. Are you gonna? Can you get to where you need to be and make contact with the people you need to? talk to. What can you tell us about time management? I remember you telling some stories about following kids around. Was it in high school for an entire day? Yes, that was my book, The Pressured Child. I followed kids through school. Just give us a sense of that, because as we parents, you know, think about this, that the commencement of high school, when I read those stories of yours, of just of just how much it exhausted you, right. a fit, a fit, energetic person, to follow a high school kid around for an entire day, that might give us parents a little bit more perspective of of how we should organize and and maybe not over organize our child's day. So, so tell us what you got from that experience. Give us Michael, the grown-up Michael Thompson's day in a high school. Last month, I was speaking at Acton Boxborough uh, High School, and Acton Boxborough is one of the top-ranked public school systems in Massachusetts, which is the top-ranked public school state in the Union. I asked an audience of 300 people, how many of you have ever followed a child through an entire school day? And one hand went up, and it was the principal of Acton Boxborough. And so I called and I was delighted that the principal had followed a child to her own school for the entire day. And I asked her to give me three adjectives to describe it. And she, the first two were exhausting and overwhelming. Exhausting. This is the principal of the school and she's sampling the product and finds it exhausting and overwhelming. So I think we have to remember the kids are doing a lot on the ground to, 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 to grapple with this uh, experience, and 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 the the better a school is, the more the experience is like drinking from a fire hose because the information is just coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, and you have to learn 
um, to be productive, to manage your time, um, but you also have to learn to prioritize and 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 try and figure out with this rush of information what you're really good at and what you really care about. And there's lots that I approve of in American education, and I like our comprehensive approach in some ways. We're not very good at helping kids focus. There are other systems. The British system makes you makes you choose, and you can start to drop things. You know, if you're going to be a scientist, you can start, start dropping um, uh, more humanities and, and 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 focus a bit more. And kids want to do that in high school. And yet, let me stop you right there because, uh, well, helping kids focus. You know, coming myself from a liberal arts background and and, and being interested in so many things. Mm-hmm. You know that that would concern me for them to focus too much because you know you talk to to the most talented people in the sciences. I mean, E. O. Wilson, you know, the the the, the godfather of modern conservation, right. or the great biologists, will tell you that you know the sciences must go hand in hand with the humanities right. if they are to be understood by a broader population. Right. So 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 maybe we do have a better approach than the British in that sense. And it's one of the reasons I'm in favor of uh, lots that American education does. What you said was very American, and I'm with you, uh, Michael. But I, I do think that kids who graduate from high school who've just met all the requirements, who've taken nine AP courses because they think um, they think that's going to be impressive to an elite college admissions office, not realizing that those offices have a ton of kids with nine APs who work themselves to death but are but have no sense of joy or zest or curiosity or or devotion you know i was just in china and i presented at a conference about camping cuz the chinese are interested in in camping what they call camp education and i presented with um uh, 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 two educators. One was the head of Beijing Number Four, which is the probably, arguably the most elite high school in Beijing. Another was the head of the experimental uh, uh, school attached to Beijing Normal University, and these are really competitive high schools. And they said we're turning our kids into test-taking machines, and they have no zest and curiosity. They're simply. Uh, you know, automatons. By, by the way, this brings us full circle back to the beginning because you said this whole trend in America towards preparing kids at an early age to think about college came from global competition. And clearly the, the greatest global competition in our minds is the competition from the Chinese. Right, but 25 years ago, you know, it was the Japanese economic miracle. And a lot of American parents were looking, wow, Japan is, what do they do? We want to do more like that. And I know from visiting Japan that the Japanese worry that they're burning out their kids in high school. That the college admission that you get in Japan guarantees you your first job, but you don't have to do anything in university. And a lot of the kids are just burned out by the time they go to university. You know, something I've noticed, because our, our kids go to uh, uh, schools that do not push the college pressure on kids. Right. Very, very fine schools that, do, that intentionally try to avoid getting their students obsessed with college. And yet we're already hearing 
that our kids are talking about it at a very early age. And it's either coming from other kids or other kids who have heard it from their parents. You can't avoid that atmosphere. So in a sense, coming back again to this theme of the commencement address that eighth graders or even younger need to hear to almost protect themselves from that mindset and from that culture, I mean, that, that's going to take a lot of work for, for us parents as well as the kids. So, so when they're hearing these things and maybe drinking from a fire hose, your phrase, uh, maybe that's the title of this because it'll catch people's attention and people can visualize, well, no, that's too difficult. I wouldn't drink from a fire hose. And then the, then the challenge is, how do I get the water I need out of that fire hose without drowning, Right. Right. Well, of course, you have to back off a little and 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 and, and drink, and then pull back and drink, and then pull back. You know what I would tell eighth graders, and you you have me giving a, a commencement speech for eighth graders. I would remind them that uh, every year in every school, fifty percent of the kids are in the bottom half of the class. And talking about elite colleges and and uh, all of these things. Uh, that make the hearts of the most ambitious parents race are not going to be available to most kids. You need to get a good education, make a good relationship with a couple of teachers, because that'll be transformative for your entire life. If you come out of high school with two or three teachers you really cared about and they really cared about you, um, and you worked hard in their subject, that, that you have forever. I think that there are inspiring teachers in every school. There are boring teachers in every school. There are, forgive me, tight-ass teachers in every school don't really like kids who just love their subject. And I'm not that interested in teachers who are just in love with their subject or in love with the idea of APs and aren't good with kids. So I think that um, inspiration comes from various sources and the idea that only the top honors track has the inspiring teachers is um, a flawed assumption. Yeah, you can't love every... I had an eighth grade boy. I, I was speaking from my book, The Pressured Child, and I was talking to them about the pressures that they felt. This was a boy at the American School in London. I said, I'm going to see your teachers this afternoon. And is there anything I could say to them uh, on your behalf? And this boy said, yeah. Would you tell the teachers that, like, not every one of their courses is like the center of the world? And I loved it because that was the voice of sanity. Of course, if you have seven classes a day, you can't you can't do them all equally well. They're not all that all seven teachers don't appeal to you equally. I do think that adults try and maximize their strengths and minimize their weaknesses, but school especially school with the elite college in mind means you have to do everything very well, which may mean you, you become a grind. You grind everything out and don't really enjoy anything or feel passionate about anything. And that's what they were worried about in China, that they've got their kids grinding everything out for the university exams. Well, there is real scarcity in China. Only one in four kids can find a university place. And they have a big nine-hour exam at the end of high school, and everybody is frantic about it who has aspirations to higher education. But America, which is one quarter the size of China, has four times as many colleges and universities as China does. 
American colleges and universities are actually not hard to get into. 200 of them, or 250, are extremely competitive. But there are many that are not so competitive, and where a kid can find herself or himself at age 19, 20, and 21. Now, I believe in kids going to college, and David Leonard has a piece in the New York Times this week that uh, even for modestly talented students or students with C-plus averages, in high school, the evidence is that going to college is a darn good thing in, from an economic standpoint. So I believe in, in preparing kids to go to college, but not making them all frantic about the elite college. And I have a story about a boy I met in Ohio once, and he said to me, you know, my dad says I, if I have a good life, I have to go to an Ivy League college. And he said, I guess I believe him. He says it so often, I guess I believe him, but I heard the doubt. And I said, but I, I hear the doubt in your voice. What, why do you doubt it? And he said, my dad went to the University of Dayton, and, and I think he has a very good life. So here's a father saying you have, to, you have to compete for these few scarce places. But the father's life story told a whole different story to the son, and the son was smart enough to see that. This is not just a commencement address for eighth graders that I'm trying to prepare. It's a commencement address for address for eighth graders and their parents. Right. So now let's take the eighth graders out of the room. Right. And just leave the parents in there and even parents who have third and fourth and fifth graders. And right. the kids are hearing the buzz already. Yeah, they are. What would you, if you had two minutes with these parents... Don't just tell me what you think they should do, but why? What what evidence from the field? Because you really are. You're a field reporter in this world. You know, I tease parents. I talk to parents probably 150 nights a year, and I tease them. I ask them, how many of you went to an elite college? By And then they always say, what do you mean by that? And I say, well, by any definition, elite college. And maybe I have 10 or 15 percent of the people in the room. If I'm on the Upper East Side of New York at a private school, maybe it's 30% or 35% of people in the room. And I look at all the rest of them. I said to the rest of them, I said, how do you get out of bed in the morning? How do you face yourselves? How do you do your lives if you didn't go to an elite college? And it always gets a laugh. It always gets a laugh because the majority of people in the world didn't go to an elite college. And many people have done very, very well. But I go back to my initial point. You know, Berkeley or Columbia University can't guarantee to make your child, and now I'm speaking to the parents, into a loving, moral, productive, independent young adult. That is the work of the years of high school. That is the work of parents, and it is also the work of the child, him or herself. And if you have a frantic, anxious child who's worried about grades every second, um, and I'm worried for her uh, because she's not on the track to become a loving, moral, productive, independent young adult. She's on the track to become a very anxious adult. Loving, moral, productive, and independent. Let me ask you a final question because most of your consulting and work is done in, uh, in high schools and, and lower. Have, have you had much experience talking to uh, uh, administrators in colleges and teachers in colleges, and do you know what they're seeing coming in? Well, Bill Fitzsimmons, who, was the dire- who is the director of admissions at Harvard, a couple of years ago gave a speech, and somebody asked him, what would you like to see for kids who go to Harvard? He said, I'd like uh, 
every kid who's admitted to Harvard to take two years off before they come because of what they've had to go through to get in. I want to have, a, have some life outside of school before they get back on the treadmill again. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say one gap year. He said two years off. You know, it's so interesting because when, when at the age of 30, I, as a young journalist, I was hired by Peter Jennings to be his writer. And I will always remember that job interview with Peter Jennings because one of the f- first questions that he emphasized to me is, he said, what do you do outside of the newsroom for fun right. that you're interested in? He really wants to know that. And he was actually a journalist who brought his outside life and he was an insatiably curious guy. He always found a way to weave those outside interests into the news stories. It gave him more perspective. So that's what that, that's what that reminds me of in, in my own life. Um, so that's interesting, a two-year, two years of gap to sort of experience life. To develop a life outside of school, it, it, it makes you a much more sturdy and ultimately focused student. Okay, so, so you know, we parents can see are our children growing up to be loving, moral, productive, and independent? I guess the question is, how self-aware are kids in high school? And I sort of asked this in another way earlier, but you know, if, if they have the sense that they're feeling it, yeah, you know, I, I really am developing into developing these four traits uh, in a pretty impressive way. I'm proud of myself because right now, to have that self-confidence, well, as you said, the grades, you know, I know kids can get a lot of self-confidence by performing well in school, by getting the grades, but as, as you alluded to uh, with the girl who really got the self-confidence when she was doing her homework without her mother looking over her shoulder, right. there, are, there are other things that kids can sense in themselves. And independence, there's, I mean, I, I just have to say that one of our children is going to a school that does a yearly trip to a different city. Sometimes they're international cities, sometimes there are other cities in the US, and it is a an almost entirely student-planned trip, flaws and all, and they just feel this is such an important, and they take a, a, a three weeks, basically, out of their school. I mean, they still have their classes, but for three weeks, they plan this trip, even more than that, really, and they consider it an enormous growth experience. But can high school kids themselves, and what experience do you have to answer this, And can they assess for themselves, you know something, I might not be getting the straight A's in, you know, in every AP course, but boy, am I, I'm, I feel really good about myself. Oh, I think they absolutely can. And it's because when you have a feeling of psychological ownership, I did this. I planned this. I went on this. My mom and dad didn't do this for me. They didn't take me on some vacation trip. I did this. I planned this with my friends, and we did it. And and we have ownership of that. That's an unmistakable feeling. When you do a service learning project and you work with younger children or disadvantaged children, and the kids are so openly appreciative to you, you you know that's yours uh, because you put in the time with the kids and they admire you because you did something worthwhile with them and for them. And that, that psychological ownership is a, an unmistakable internal experience. 
what did you do? What, when did you get your feet under you? When, when did you get that feeling that I'm Michael Thompson? I've really got it together. I am an independent young man. Right. I know exactly when it happened. I, had, I went to find private schools. My parents had money and my parents had gone to private schools. And they sent me and I got a first-rate education. But when I came into my own, it was when I was working a job at the New York Aquarium in Coney Island. It had just, the aquarium had just opened, and they had all these tankmen taking care of fish and mammals. And, and if you think about what it's like, how do, you, how do you find people who know how to do that? This was in the days long before SeaWorld or anybody. They had taken the construction workers who built the aquarium, the ones who had shown an interest in the seals and walruses and penguins, who are constantly going back to the animals and paying attention to them. They made them um, the, the, the first cohort of of employees, tankmen, they were called, um, at the New York Aquarium. But they were all blue-collar guys. And uh, there was no fancy private education there. And they recognized that I was, uh, as one of them called me, a little Lord Fauntleroy. But it was a summer of commuting through Brooklyn on the subway uh, to Coney Island, working with blue-collar guys, but especially taking care of animals um, who needed us. And it was taking care of animals um, and, and uh, washing out, you know, the walrus crap and uh, uh, making sure the animals weren't sick and putting pills in fish and feeding it to them so they got the medicines they needed. And it was taking care of something real in the outside world uh, that made me think, oh, I know who I am. I'm somebody who takes care. I, I take care. And, and, and I'm reliable, and, and I can do it. And I didn't end up being a marine biologist uh, in college. I washed out of college science. But I'm still taking care of people. I'm still taking care in that way. And I've known who I was in that way since I was 16 years old. 16. That story, I can only say one thing about that story. I'm looking at those words again, and that fits every metric you talked about. You were being loving, productive, moral, and independent in that story. Yep. That's it. That's our. That's our. Uh, that's the beginning, and uh, uh, we're going to take it from there. And do you have a similar story, Michael? Oh, I think it was my either my last year in high school or my first year in college. I got a summer job. Somebody in the apartment building where we lived owned this factory, and I'll tell you what factory it was. I can't remember the name of it, but it was in a blue collar town in New Jersey. And you know those name tags in uh, that everybody, every blue collar worker wears. If if you're in a garage or you know. You're you're a mechanic or whatever it is, and there's Mike, and it's embroidered. There's embroidery around the edge of it, and NASA astronauts wear those, right? You know, and this was the, I think, the premier factory in the country for making those embroidered uh, uh, label name labels. Now, the machines that made them had one uh, uh, one downside. They left a thread hanging at the end of the outer rim of embroidery. Somebody needed to cut those threads off. So it's like, okay, we got an order for 100 mics. And my job was to just cut the ends off those threads all day and all night. And then I, I understood what the meaning of waiting for that 
that coffee break bell was with the little lunch truck outside. And then, and I was the only English speaker in that factory. And, you know, I can't say, look, it didn't teach me how to be loving, although it probably taught me how to be more empathetic yep. because I saw what the lives were like of of people who had, you know, a daily rote kind of job. You know, other people had, you know, some people sealed the plastic bags. Yep. You know, other people did something else. But my job was to just cut. Was I productive? Well, not in the area I want to be productive in, but but you know what? I, I cut an awful lot of fabric. And you were doing the work of the world. And I was doing the work of the world. And was it moral? Well, I was, you know, certainly acting morally. And I was certainly independent of my parents. So um, that's my story. It's, it's, uh, I like your story better, though. because Well, uh, you know, it's a little more exotic when you put sea mammals into it. But it was still seeing a bigger world, having to produce, having to be on time, and, 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 and seeing the work of the world. Well, listen, uh, Michael Thompson, Ph.D., psychologist, author of many books, including Raising Cain. I, I can't remember the subtitle. How to raise, raise Emotionally Healthy Young Boys. Is that right? Protecting the Emotional Life of Boys. That'll do. Okay, that was close. And that was sort of required reading in our school. I know that. And The Pressured Child. We've talked a lot. A lot of what I've talked about today is, is from The Pressured Child. The Pressured Child. And now you're going to, uh, you're going to transform the nation of China uh, and their concerns about, about creating a population of test taking machines, which is a huge challenge, but it's, but it's a reminder. You know, I, I will end it with this because, again, you're, you're right. The, you know, the, the global competition has, ha- has played a big role in this anxiety, certainly among parents. And um, uh, I recently had an opportunity to interview Evan Osnos, who wrote a book on China called Age of Ambition. And, and what he told me was ambition translated into Mandarin is wild heart. And it used to be a pejorative because it was such a communal society. If, if you were a peasant, a farmer, and you had a wild heart, you were dangerous and you could get into trouble. You were too independent. Now, Evan Osnos tells me after living and having lived in China for 10 years as the senior correspondent of The New Yorker, and by the way, he just uh, uh, became a Pulitzer finalist for this book that he wrote last year. He says that now, if you go into the Chinese bookstores and like the self-help sections, You've got titles like How to Create a Child with a Wild Heart. Right. Well, I've, I've read, I'm 90% of the waves through the book, and it's a brilliant read, and it has demystified China for me. So good job, Evan, is what I say. Listen, good luck on you. When is, when is the next time you're going to China, by the way? Uh, it's not clear, but it'll probably be in the next six months. Do you tell them a lot of stories about America when you go there? The thing I asked the Chinese audience was I, I took a microphone and went in the audience, and I said, think for a moment about the sweetest moment of your childhood the kind of really great moment of your childhood. Now, just everybody pull that in mind. I've done this with many American audiences. Never done it in China before, and I told them it was my first time in China. I said, for how many of you, were you that for that moment, were your parents present? 20% of the hands went up. And I said, well, based on my American uh, respondents, I'm going to tell you what they was for the 80% of you. You were away from your parents, with your friends, doing something a little risky, but challenging and fun. And that was exactly the way it was for the Chinese as it is for Americans. You, you come into your own when you're away from your parents, with your friends, doing something that's a little risky or challenging that you weren't sure you could do. And that's 
that's your memory of the sweetest moment of your childhood. Michael Thompson, you've given us the, the closing line now for the commencement address for eighth graders and their parents. Thank you so much for joining me. Michael, thanks for having me. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. Here's a tale of two students, both working adults. He commutes to college before and after work, carrying all the baggage that goes with it. She goes to Independence University, and Independence University goes with her. It's online, so all she needs is a connection, and anywhere becomes her campus. He's getting a degree, but he's also getting majorly stressed out. She chose Independence University online for a better life offline. Visit independence.edu or call 800-370-1077 today.